Bible, and in particular, you think of First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Thessalonians. Uh, I want you to open to First and Second Adam. Uh, you find it in Romans chapter five. But uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Paul's contrast between what we've already sung about, uh, and it's it's great to see this reflected in our, our hymns and our songs. How. Uh, there was a first Adam, and then uh, Jesus came as the second Adam, our, our, our second representative for, for humanity. So let's stand in honor of God's word. I'm going to look at verses 12 uh, through 21. And you, you'll see in your, uh, I should mention in your bulletin, there's an indentation in the text there. That's not a, uh, that's not a formatting uh, mistake or whatever. Um, really what you have is two different thoughts um, Verse 12 is completed all the way down to verse 18, and verses 13 through 17 are uh, an extrapolation of Paul, uh, so just keep that in mind as we're, as we're reading these verses. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but Sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin is increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Father, would you help us to understand and to receive these words? Lord, would you help us to rejoice in the new life, the new humanity that you have inaugurated through Jesus? May we be full and joyful participants in what you are doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> um, in your outline, you'll see the direction we're heading. We're going to talk about Adam uh, and how we are, as a hum human race, all alike under condemnation through Adam's representation. And you see that, uh, that expression uh, in verse 16, how judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But then verse 16 continues, and it says that the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. And so we're not only going to talk 
about condemnation by representation, but justification by representation. And so you've got the first Adam, and then you've got the second Adam. So let's talk about the first Adam. Um, Adam is our, our federal failure, you might say. Jesus is our righteous representative. Adam, think about him as our federal failure. Um, and we're not going to be hard on Adam this morning. I think uh, you may be surprised at um, some things that we're going to see about Adam. Uh, we're, we're maybe accustomed in the church to, to looking at him as, I don't know, you know, the scapegoat, the guy that we're just, when we see in heaven, we're just going to give him a piece of our mind, right? Um, well, Maybe not. Uh, but let's look at verse 12. Right out of the chute, what Paul's uh, you know, setting up in this contrast is that just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin, um, he's talking about Adam. And he's talking about not just simply that we're all like Adam in that we too sin, which is true, but when Paul says that death spread to all men because all sin. You need, to, you need to think in your mind that there's a, a bracket right behind all sin, and in that bracket are the words, in Adam. So that that phrase would be completed, so death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam. Meaning that we're not simply condemned because we ourselves have sinned. We, Paul is saying here, we really are under God's just condemnation because of what Adam did. Just because of what Adam did. And because he is our, our representative. He is our federal head. And that's a, that's a concept we're going to explain a little bit more here in a second. But what, what's important is to, to see is that God put Adam on the earth to be God's representative to the world, Adam and Eve were God's image bearers, so they represent God to the world. But Adam and Eve also are our representatives. They stand in our place, representing all of humanity that would, that would flow from them. So um, Adam is, is a, a twofold representative, representing God, representing us, kind of like a priest who represents God, represents the, the, the congregation. And so Adam stands there as our representative. How did he do as God's representative and as our representative? Well, he didn't do such a great job as God's representative. He turned away from God, no longer, you know, reflected his glory, but said, you know, hey, life can be found outside of God. And therefore, as our representative, he was a failure. He, he failed as our federal head. Uh, in Genesis 3, Going all the way back to Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned and done what God said not to do by eating the fruit, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths or coverings. Um, why, why were they doing this? You know, this mention of they, they knew they were naked. Well, they felt shame. They felt exposed. They felt... Um, um, no longer uh, innocent, no longer rejoicing in being fully known, uh, but instead feeling threatened by being fully known because what God now knew about them was their unfaithfulness to him, their betrayal uh, of his rule, uh, their looking and lusting for life outside of that harmony and relationship with God. 
That's, that's what the fall was all about, is sin and shame entering the human race, realizing I can't stand before God fully exposed. I can't be known completely anymore because if that were true, what would be known about me is my sin. And so Adam and Eve look for covering. They look for <laughs> loincloths. <laughs> uh, and you know, they go after the fig leaves. You know, you know the rest of the story. So Adam sinned. His sin became our sin. His guilt and shame become our guilt and shame. And then Paul goes on in a lot of comparisons between Adam and Jesus. Uh, I just want to look and, and run down these verses of what happened because of, of, you know, in Paul's analysis, because of what Adam did as our federal failure. Verse 15 says that many died through one man's trespass. Verse 16 says that the result of that one man's sin was judgment following one trespass, and that brought condemnation. So you've got death, you've got condemnation. Verse 17 says it again, that death reigned through that one man. Verse 18 talks about that one trespass led to condemnation. There's condemnation again. And then verse 19, that by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Now, um, we tend to, when we're, when we're faced with this truth, and I don't know how you, you reacted in, internally when I said, we're not just simply condemned because we're like Adam because we sin too. But what what Paul is laying out here is that we're condemned because Adam sinned. And you go, that's not fair. We, we kind of resent this representation. We don't, I don't want, I want to represent myself. You know, that's not fair that Adam, you know, because Adam failed, therefore I am, am now considered a, a failure with regard to righteousness and innocence and so on. Um, that doesn't feel right. But now we have to ask ourselves, well, fine. What if God allowed you and allowed me to represent ourselves? Would we have done any better? You know, think about this, because who is Adam? Perfectly made in God's image, and he is, Adam is God's choice to represent the human race. Can you, can you find a better candidate? And, when, and, and the whole concept of representation isn't so foreign to us. We look for representation in, in court. That's why you hire an attorney. That's why people say it's generally a bad idea to represent yourself, because you need somebody who's qualified, more qualified than you are. And, and if you're in trouble legally, you want to find the best attorney, the best representative that you can possibly find. And in politics, we want to we elect the best representatives that we can find who, who are going to you know, stand on behalf of their constituency and, and do that with the best qualifications. And so if you're looking, and if, if we want the best possible federal representative in our place, it, it, it would have been Adam. And so that's why I think it's important that we don't just dump on Adam thinking, oh man, he, what a failure. <laughs> we would not have done any better. Keep in mind that we really do, at the end of the day, desire representation. That's what kind of established this whole country in the first place. Uh, we were a little upset that we didn't have representation. 
um, when it came to King George and that whole little deal about taxation, um, because we absolutely demanded, we were you know, apoplectic uh, about not having representation, and it led to war. That's how desperately we wanted representation. And when it comes to our representation before the Lord, you know, we look to Adam and we go, that didn't go so well. And it's not really just his fault. We would have done the same thing. Let's talk about original sin here for a second, because that's really what we're talking about. Uh, if you're new to the church or new to the Bible, maybe you've heard about the concept of original sin. Um, but if you don't really understand what that's all about, take heart, because a lot of people who've been in the church all their lives kind of don't really grasp that. But let's, let's just try to simplify it. Um, when... Um, when our country, you know, was getting started prior to that whole, uh, uh, you know, hullabaloo about taxation without representation, people were um, learning to read with the New England Primer, uh, this little book that, uh, that schoolhouses were using. And in that little book uh, were these uh, uh, learning tools, these little memorization tools, um, and uh, they used rhyme a lot. It's in the New England Primer was where you got that little poem um, now I lay me down to sleep, um, you know, pray the Lord my soul to keep. Another little rhyme that was in there was uh, when learning the alphabet, A started with, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. It's all the way back to the, you know, 18th century. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. That's original sin. That's what we're talking about. And people view the doctrine of original sin with suspicion at best and a little bit of outrage at worst because Basically, it means that you're a sinner from the start, and you never had a chance. Is that good news? No. We, we chafe at that. We never had a chance. Uh, Psalm 51 talks about how, you know, David expressing his prayer that I was brought forth in iniquity and sin, my mother conceived me, etc. cetera. Uh, and the assumption here, the reason why we, we chafe is that if we did have a clean slate from the start, uh, what we're assuming is that we have the moral power to maintain that clean slate. But do we? Um, the, the reason why we don't really like original sin is because it, it targets our pride. Uh, it targets our, our imagination that we really can measure up left to ourselves. But the reality is, is we can't. Um, if we don't like original sin, I think at the heart of it, in me at least, is this view that I'm only viewing sin as something external and something outside of me. I'm viewing sin as an action. And if I'm really careful and if I really mind my P's and Q's, I can avoid actions that are bad, that God says are sinful, and I can pursue the actions that are good, that God says are righteous. And I think that's within my power. But what that fails to take into account is that sin isn't external. It's internal. It's internal. It's not, sin isn't just an action. It's a condition. And that's why when you even do good things, when, when, when you pursue good things and when you avoid the bad things, you can even do those things externally by checking the box, but internally your heart can be so full of just nasty stuff. Um, like, okay, uh, I'm going to tell the truth, right? Because you're supposed to tell the truth. But, hmm, if I tell the truth, at work about this other employee, that's going to get, you know, them, that's going to put a cloud over them, it's going to put a halo over me, I can advance, that person, you know, might get passed over, it's going to work out pretty good for me. Yeah, I'll tell the truth. 
So you're checking the box externally, but internally you're just full of pride and you know, anger and unloveliness. Or you can avoid uh, the bad things, you know, like, um, well, I'm not gonna lie uh, for the same reasons. Uh, you can, you know, all kinds of external things right, but internally still be a mess. And that's what we fail to take into account if we don't understand that sin is a condition rather than just an action. We, we talk about how we're not, we're not sinners because we sin. I mean, not just because we sin. The reason why we're considered sinners is because, you know, that's our condition. We sin because we're sinners. It's something within. It's something internal. That's original sin. It means that we can't, no matter how much we try, uh, we're not going to we're not going to pass because of what's going on in our heart. Um, and I think that's important to recognize. Um, that's, the, that's the hard truth about original sin. But there's some good news here, too, because of where, where Paul leaves things when he says in verse uh, 13, when he gets to the, to the end of that passage, or I should say verse 14, when he says, Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. That means that Adam and Eve had a direct command from God, don't eat from that tree, and they transgressed that. They said, well, we're going to eat from that tree. And other sins were apart from, you know, until Moses went up on the Mount Sinai, there, there wasn't a list of laws, but still in our conscience we knew that we weren't doing the right thing. Uh, There's sort of that moral law, that law uh, of, of conscience, and we were breaking that. But what God says is that Adam was a type of the one who was to come. So if, if you'd never read the Bible before or heard about Adam's sin or original sin or whatever, even if you adamantly believe that people are good and have the power to do good, right? So even if, even if you kind of have this uh, view of humanity that, that the Bible doesn't agree with, um, but you think that everybody in their, their internal condition is fundamentally righteous and good, you still have to conclude or account for the fact that nobody does the good that they should all the time. Nobody does the good that they should. You'd have to conclude that what makes the human race so, you know, sad is that we do bad things. Where do those things come from? So even at the end of the day, uh, Paul is talking about how um, in Adam's sin we were condemned, but that doesn't, that doesn't dismiss or discount the fact that we still do sin. And we don't do the good that we're supposed to do, and we also do the bad stuff we're not supposed to do. James talks about this when he says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. So, all right, I've kept all the commandments, but the, there's that one commandment that I broke, and James says then you're guilty of breaking all of it. Or whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Um, that's James 2. Verses 10 and 17. So when we look at Adam, we, we see a failure, and we tend to blame him for our predicament. Um, and we sort of think or imagine to ourselves that that conversation in heaven is going to be kind of awkward when we walk up to Adam and say, you know, Adam, I've got a bone to pick with you. Uh, and we're not really sure, right, so heaven's supposed to be this great place of reconciliation, but Adam, right? It's not going to be like that. Because we also see our own... Adam in ourselves. Uh, none of us would have passed that test. The Bible says that we not only need someone to rescue us from Adam's sin, we need somebody to rescue us from our own sin. 
And that's why we give thanks that verse 14 says that there was a type of the one who was to come. The good news about Adam, the good news about original sin is that God accepts substitutes. He works on a representative basis. Adam failed as our representative, but he was only a type of the one to come. Let me show you the, um, the mural from the front of your bulletin. Um, this, is, this is in a church in, in Rome. It was the first Protestant church built in Rome, right? Um, did you know there were Protestant churches in Rome? Uh, this is the St. Paul's within the walls, and it was Episcopal church. And so if you're going to build a Protestant church in Rome with all that architecture and with all that art, you, 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 better, you better have some decent art in your, in your church. So they commissioned these incredible mosaics, and, uh, and I wanted you to see this in color. But it's Adam and Eve, uh, along with Cain and Abel, that um, Eve is, is holding um, uh, Abel to her, her heart, and then Cain is sort of leaning on her leg, and he's... And it's really great. He's looking kind of like to the side. And you just know this kid's not going to turn out good. <laughs> so, anyway, um, so this is the tree of, of life, but it's, 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 it's layering two trees in the Bible. Uh, the, the tree of life uh, that you know, Adam and Eve should have been able to enjoy, had they not chosen to rebel. But then you see Jesus standing uh, in this crucifixion posture. And, uh, and he died on the tree, as, uh, as we're told in Galatians, uh, in order that blessing might come to the nations. He took our sin on himself in that second tree. And I think it's great that the artist uh, portrayed Adam in between, I'm sorry, portrayed Jesus, the second Adam, in between Adam and Eve. To be this, the, you know, his arms outstretched, to bring them together, to reconcile them to one another. But then he's elevated and, and, you know, suspended, as it were, to reconcile both of them uh, heavenward to God. Uh, so there's this great picture of the second Adam standing beside the first Adam and Eve. Uh, this picture of what he would do, what he would do as our, our righteous representative, how justification would come by representation, not just condemnation. So look again at your passage, and um, it might help you to look in your bulletin because there you see the continuation of the thought from verse 12 down to verse 18. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, therefore, verse 18, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Um, Adam's name in Hebrew really means man, um, Adam, man. And, uh, and so when, when Jesus, when Paul's referring to Jesus as this, this new Adam, Paul is referring to Jesus as the new man, the new humanity a representative of a new race, a new human, uh, humanity that's restored and reconciled to God. Uh, I'm going I'm to leave this up here because I want, I want to ask you some questions here in a second. But I want to now, you know, we looked at the results of the first Adam and, and his disobedience. Look at the results of the second Adam and his obedience. Verse 15 talks about much more have the grace of God and the free gift uh, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. Verse 16 talks about how there's this free gift. Following many trespasses, 
um, that brought justification. And verse 17 talks about the free gift of righteousness. Verse 18 talks about justification in life for all men. Verse 19 talks about one man's obedience that will make the many righteous. So our, our second Adam becomes our righteous representative, and he takes our guilt and our shame as a result of the first Adam and inheriting his nature, his sinful nature, Jesus takes all of our guilt and all of our shame onto himself. All of our condemnation he absorbs and he gives us justification instead. Do you remember back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve become aware of their sin and they go, oh no, I'm exposed. I feel my nakedness. And they look for cover. So let me, let me ask you in this mural, you can't really see it too well, and I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll give you credit for that, but um, there's something wrong with Adam and Eve's clothing. Do you have any idea what it, what it might be? What are they wearing? Can you see? They look like kind of bathrobes or Greek, you know, um, what do they call those, tunics or whatever. Um, so they, they look like they're made of cloth, um, but that's not what Adam and Eve were wearing. What were they wearing? An animal skin. Um, a, a tunic of leather, uh, because this, this picture of sacrifice, that blood was shed, a covering was made for them, and God provided the covering. Uh, so the artist sort of uh, maybe wasn't reading carefully, I, I don't know, uh, Genesis 3. But they weren't wearing um, cotton, they were wearing uh, a tunic. And uh, of leather. Now, let me ask you the, the image of, of Christ on the tree. What's wrong with that picture? Ponder that question for a second while I read to you John 19. So when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. And so they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. And this was to fulfill the scripture, which says that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So anything, you notice anything kind of not appropriate, given this, this picture of Christ in the crucifixion posture? Whoops, all right, you, you, you know, test is over. Anyway, um, he's not supposed to be wearing anything. They took his tunic. That was his undergarment. You know, he didn't have a loincloth. Uh, the whole point is that Jesus was naked, exposed to God's condemnation and judgment in our place. He took our shame he took our guilt, he took everything on himself and was fully exposed to the, 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 uh, the wrath, as Paul describes it, uh, the right, righteous anger against sin that God poured out on Jesus so that all who trust in Jesus would be spared from that, be hidden from that, covered in Jesus, who was our representative. So he not only represents us as our substitute to bear our sin on the cross, but he represents us as the, the, the law keeper, the one who uh, satisfied God's righteousness in his life so that 
he not only takes our sin away, but he gives us his obedience. Um, and that's what regards us as righteous. That's what counts us as righteous, what makes us righteous. So it's weird to me that, um, you know, pictures of the crucifixion, I don't, I don't know what goes on in your heart, but when I don't, I don't particularly like looking at it. Like, I never saw in the movie The Passion of the Christ, just because I knew that I didn't want to see um, the crucifixion according to Mel Gibson. I didn't want to see that, that um, anyway, just that picture of violence and so on. I get, I get it, that the crucifixion, that a crucifixion is a very, very violent act. And that's why we don't want to look at it. But sometimes we do, and we look at these pictures or, or artist pictures or film portrayals and we see this violent act. But you know what? No, nobody portrays them as naked. It's almost as if, all right, it's one thing to see this violent act, and, we, and, and we're not sure how to regard that. We don't know if we should look or not, kind of like going by a bad accident. Should I look or not? But we dare not look on a naked Jesus. Does it remind us too much of our own shame? Our own nakedness? Our own need for covering? And the good news is what, what Eugene Peterson describes as aggressive forgiveness. And in verse 20, what you see is that the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Eugene Peterson, in his uh, paraphrase, the message, uh, uses that phrase, grace abounded all the more, to talk about God's aggressive forgiveness. God's aggressive forgiveness, where in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's using that contrast between Adam and Jesus again, and he says that as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Um, Paul is not talking about universalism, that every single human being is all going to be uh, made alive regardless of what they believe or how they act or whatever. What he's saying is that all those who are in Adam will die, and similarly, all those who are in Christ will be made alive. Now that begs the question, are you in Christ? Are you confident that you are united to him? Is he your representative? John Stott says it this way. So then, whether we are condemned or justified, whether we are spiritually alive or dead, depends on which humanity we belong to. Whether we still belong to the old humanity instead initiated by Adam or to the new humanity initiated by Christ. Which humanity do we belong to, older than new? C.S. Lewis talks about how God didn't send his son in order to turn creatures, uh, to, in order to turn nice people into to better people. He, he came to turn old people into new people, creatures into sons. And, and we're part of this new humanity through faith in Jesus. So Jesus, Adam was our, our uh, representative who failed. Jesus is our representative who was righteous. And now we, part of the new humanity, if our faith is in him, if he is our representative, we become representatives of our representative. Part of the shame that we feel, part of that nakedness that we run from, is knowing that we fail. 
knowing that we, we fail when uh, we think about our own actions or things that have happened and we want, we want the do-over, you know, we want to try it again. But when we're in Christ, when we're a new humanity, um, we don't need a do-over as if it was our power to remove our own shame if we'd just done things differently. Part, being part of a new humanity means that my, my righteousness, my innocence, my, my glory is in Jesus, not in my ability to measure up, to do things differently, you know, to try harder, to do it again, or whatever. And that means every part of life is affected by that. I mean, it's Mother's Day, right? So what does it mean to be part of the new humanity, to represent our representative when it comes to parenting? You know, Mother's Day is a tricky holiday, and we talk about this each year. You know, we love to regard the uh, mothers, especially you know, if we had good mothers, healthy mothers who, who mothered us well. And there's no perfect mother, and I don't, you know, nobody in this room regards their mother and, and should deify them. And some of our mothers were worse than others. But if you're part of the new humanity, don't measure your own ability to be a mother by just saying, hey, I want to be like my earthly mom or I don't want to be anything like my earthly mom because of the mistakes that she might have made. That's the way the world looks at mothering or parenting. The new humanity says, I want to, I want to be the mother that God made me to be. I want to be a mother in the image of the one who, Jesus, who stood outside of Jerusalem and said, I would, I would gather you as a hen gathers her chicks under her arms. What does it mean to represent Christ as a mom? And what does it mean to represent Christ as a son or a daughter to your mom and to honor her in that way? That's part of the new humanity. Um, so when it comes to our own parental failures, when it comes to financial failures, you know, how do you look at your money? How do you look at debt? How do you look at... Um, what you're spending on. Uh, are you doing that as a part of the new humanity or are you doing that as part of the world? Does the world say that you're a financial you know, failure if you're struggling financially? And are you measuring that according to the world's standards or are you measuring that according to God's standards? What are you doing with your money? How are you using it? What's your view of success? You know, so we can look at professional uh, you know, success or failure through the new humanity. Am, am I... Maybe I, I'm not advancing at work. I'm not doing, I'm not in the job that I wanted to be in. Well, is that because, you know, you're believing that success is based on an American dream or are you working according to a member of the new humanity that's in Jesus? And yeah, maybe you did get passed over for that promotion. Maybe you're not in the job that you want to be in, but maybe, maybe Jesus has a purpose for you where you are right now. And what is that purpose and how do you represent him well? Um, you know, we can talk about how the new humanity relates to marriage. Uh, some of you here feel like failures. You feel that shame of, you know, divorce or unfaithfulness. Or uh, you feel like, hey, I'm single and I want to be married. How come I can't get married? What does it mean to be part of the new humanity that looks at marriage the way God looks at marriage? Where if you're married, you're there to represent Jesus to your spouse. You're not married because that's your ticket to happily ever after. You know, by God's grace, you'll have lots of joy. Let's pray that's the case. But you're fundamentally in that marriage to represent your representative. How well are you doing that? If you're single, you're on this planet to represent your representative who would still have a high regard for marriage, who doesn't get jaded, who doesn't get bitter, and who doesn't wallow in loneliness, but is a part of the family of God. And you rejoice to be a part of 
Christ's bride, whom he loves deeply and passionately. Lastly, um, you know, talking about some of the social things, we think about racial issues, we think about political issues. What does it mean to be part of the new humanity that looks at one another, not simply based on uh, are you black, are you white, are you Hispanic? Um, we talk about uh, the gospel leading us not so much to be colorblind, but um, we want to regard the culture that everybody comes from. Um, so if you're, uh, uh, you know, um, well, I'll, I'll use my daughter as an example. You know, she's Chinese ethnicity, but American culture. So what does it mean to regard and, and respect her, uh, her culture as an American? What does it mean to look at somebody with a different skin color and sure, you're going to acknowledge their skin color, but fundamentally as part of the new humanity, we're looking at them the way Jesus would look at them. Not based on the color of their skin, but how can I love them? How can I appreciate the culture that they come from and how that shows us this beautiful picture of all these tribes and tongues and languages before the throne. Uh, lastly, politically, are, are we ashamed? Are we feeling the nakedness politically of our culture, regardless of your candidate? Is that how, is that, is that, is that represent the new humanity well? Here's the question. Did Jesus go around depressed about Caesar? No. Because he knew who really ruled this world. And his hope is in heaven. His hope is in his father. And where's our hope? Culturally, politically, nationally, etc. So I'm just trying to give you a picture of the new humanity representing our representative, being found in him. He covers our shame. He takes our guilt away. He takes, you know, all of that fear of exposure away and covers us as a robe covers us with his righteousness so that we, therefore, can go and represent our representative. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we, uh, we, need, we need help with this.